This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. Welcome to the Minefield in a thoroughly changed world. Britain has a new Prime Minister. The ABC's just lost Doctor Who. I understand these are just all things that we haven't seen before. We're in unprecedented times. Uh, Scott, that's Scott Stevens, my co-host I'm speaking to. Waleed Ali is my name. I don't know which of these things makes my head spin more, Scott. Yeah, well, new Prime Minister, that was something. I'll confess that I'm breathing a sigh of relief that uh, a former Prime Minister didn't somehow make his way back. I don't Uh, think that was ever really a possibility, but let's just say that everything after that is possibly upside. Um, All things are possible too in this moment. Well, yes, it actually wouldn't wouldn't have surprised me at all had we had the second coming of (laughs) Boris or the third coming. Um, Wally, before we get into the show... Just uh, leaving Doctor Who, I noticed. Leaving, well... It's not at all interesting. Well, I'm actually... For me, Doctor Who kind... Well, I won't say when it ended because people are going to charge me with all sorts of different things. But I, I do love... Doctor Who. Uh, this is a subject for another show that I'm not even going to be drawn into now. But I do have a favourite Doctor as well, which I'm not going to say. Yeah, but the but... point is it's gone after 50 years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still going, but the ABC won't have it. Yeah. There's something about a relationship like that ending. I've never watched Doctor Who. I, don't, I couldn't care less about mm. it. That's not the point. Mm. The point is the, the ending of an era. Yes, and, and it being seconded to a streaming service. Yeah. Rather than a public broadcast. I know. I know. A sign of... Yeah. Okay. We're going to have to do a show on it, for sure. But... Before we do this show, and there is a heavy irony that Mm. in this year of all years, you have somehow managed us to talk about, I I believe this is our fifth sport-related show (laughs) of the minefield in 2022. I'm scandalized and delighted all at the same time. Yeah, incredible. It hasn't even been a good sporting year for my teams. I know, that's remarkable. Yeah, but before we do... Uh, we need to do a bit of a forward announcement about something that's coming up. Anyone oh, who's, yes. Yeah, I know. I, know. I knew yes. you would forget. This is yeah. another aspect of me trying to pander to you desperately uh, by Dang on. discussing on. No, things no. that I'm not interested this in. This was all you. It was. I want this to be clear. I know what you're about to say. Listener, this was all Scott. I had nothing to do with this. Well, it was my suggestion in the hopes that it was going to bring back the sparkle to your eye. Uh, is that all right? Is that okay? Yeah, to say? okay. 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 Um, anyone who's been listening to the show over the course of this year knows that from time to time, we've tried to dip into, I don't even know what we're calling it. You called it the not quite book club something, something, something. I <laughs> called it something like the art of living. What we're trying to do is to take things that deserve a high degree of attention and that reward the degree of attention that you give to it. But these are cultural objects. These are things that are accessible to anybody. It's not, uh, you know, Iris Murdoch's sovereignty of good. It's not Franz Kafka's The Trial, although we may still do Franz Kafka's you say that would be The a good Trial. One. Yeah. That would be a very good one. So we're trying to do things that are accessible to anybody, but which shed a really interesting light on the way that we think about the moral life and our existence in the world. It's not an ethical reading of books or films or TV or whatever, but it's kind of a reading of the ethical life in their light. Um, so we've got our next one coming up. And this is a cool one. It really is. So <laughs> I couldn't believe I fell off. I, I almost know, fell off my chair when you said yes. I love it. So, so we've done the HBO six, uh, series Succession over three seasons, which we thought would be bite-sizable enough. Uh, we've done Jane Austen's great work of moral philosophy, Emma, which <laughs> I'm still getting correspondence about. It was the prospect of hearing you talk about Regency drama that, that was... <laughs> It was unavoidable (laughs) to people. But what we're doing on the 10th of November is when it's going to be going to air. We're discussing, get ready. Mm. It's 22 minutes, 37 seconds long. (laughs) (laughs) It is Queen's set at Live Aid at Wembley Stadium from 1985. I know. It's brilliant. So many things about it are extraordinary. And it's, it's, all, it's available on YouTube, right? It you is. You could just go and watch it. Yeah. There's no, there shouldn't really be many barriers to being able to watch it. It is a work of art. It's a work of art that is already ethically inflected. I'm not going to go into any further reasons as to why, but if anybody knows anything about Live Aid, you know why. And it's a performance that demands a kind of reckoning about the peculiar relationship that exists between artists and crowds. Hmm. 
Look, uh, I'm I'm very excited. So that's... and you you know for sure your homework will only take you 22 minutes and 37 <laughs> seconds. Although someone really should watch it, kind of more than that. There's so much going on there. Now the interesting mm. thing is, I'm no Queen fan, and so I imagine there are going to be a lot of non-Queen fans out there. But you still, it's it it's going to be good. I'm looking forward uh, to it. Housekeeping done. House, should house, we do today's please. Uh, show? Do you want to kick us All off? Right. Oh, I was hoping you would. We're talking netball. Yeah. Well, we're not talking netball. We're not talking netball, are we? No, we're talking sport. Yeah. Sponsorship. And sponsorship. And solidarity. Well, to some extent. Well, I'm talking solidarity. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, all right. We're doing two different shows at once here. Yeah, probably. And we're also talking conscience. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you something. And the moments all those things collide. Yeah, go on. Does this issue, anybody who's been following the news already knows what we're going to start talking about. Does this qualify for you? Does this meet the high watermark of conscientious objection? The refusal or the statement of extreme moral discomfort of wearing a jersey as a representative sports person that bears the logo of a company with which one has profound moral objections. Does that qualify for you, the kind of high, the high bar of conscientious objection? Uh, it can. Okay. But it doesn't necessarily. Interesting. Yeah. So for those who've been following, there there have been, sorry, haven't been following, there have been a few instances that kind of all get lumped in together, which in a way they shouldn't, but mm-hmm. I, I can kind of see what they do. Um, the starting point is probably Netball Australia and the Australian Netball team particularly, and a young rookie player, Donnell Wallum, who's mm-hmm. a Noongar woman from Perth, and was to be, as it happens, the first Indigenous player to represent Australia in the team in two decades, the third, I think, overall. Yeah, that's right. That team is sponsored by, and they're, what do you call it? A skirt, right? Dress? I'm not sure. I don't, why Jersey? is the terminology escape me? The Let's uniform. keep it uniform, shall we? Okay, yeah. Um, features the logo of a company, that logo being Hancock Prospecting, so mm-hmm. Gina Reinhardt's company, Lang Hancock's the founder of that company, and said, I think what we can very safely describe as just horrifically racist things, specifically about Indigenous people in the 1980s. And it has resurfaced online, I think. But it's never really disappeared from public consciousness because its its sentiment and its intent is, let's just put it this way, culturally genocidal. It's not just a singular statement, but it's the expression of a view that believes that and in a very real way wishes that the First Nations of this country disappeared effectively. Well, the ones who didn't assimilate. That didn't assimilate, yes, thank you. So it was, it was a, the comment was to do with putting something in the water that would sterilise yeah. Indigenous people who don't assimilate. So that's the tenor of it. I think you're talking very, very serious stuff. That happens on the one hand. On the other hand, you have, um, and where this has gone, um, that's a very particular case in a way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, where this has gone is then further arguments within sports and Australia, the Australian cricket team, the, the men's cricket team sponsored by uh, an energy company, that sponsorship now about to come to an end and it emerges that the Australian test cricket captain had raised concerns, perhaps even objections we could say, to the Australian cricket team having such a sponsor in an age of impending climate catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And that has then, I think, been read back into the Nepal situation because you're talking about a mining company. That's so right. But the connection was not... That's not actually where the Nepal thing that's started. That's right. This is really <laughs> but, important. That's right. But it's, but it's become part of that. And then this triggered all sorts of conversations about, for example, the Fremantle Dockers in the AFL who are sponsored also by an energy company. And then certain members, high-profile supporters, saying they're not comfortable with this. And so I, I think there's a problem a bit in the way you ask the question, Scott, because it, it puts all of these different things together. I, I'm comfortable with the idea that there are circumstances in which an athlete should be able to say, I can't wear that logo. Mm-hmm. I worry, though, if I were to assent to your principle, which is that it's a freedom of conscience thing, and an athlete no, should always I, I be didn't, able to say that. No, I didn't say it was a principle. No, but the way you described it, like, so that the articulation of the principle okay. as you described it, yep. I worry if I assent to that, that we might be expanding the notion of freedom of conscience beyond the work that it should do. And here, I would draw a distinction, which I know will be horrifically unpopular, especially to this audience. I would draw a distinction between religious conscientious objection and individual conscientious objection or 
otherwise ethical conscientious objection. And I would draw it on this basis, and that is that religious conscientious objection has a different sort of a character. Mm-hmm. Um, so here I'm thinking of, you know, and this has happened a few times, um, particularly Muslim players who don't want to wear an alcohol logo yeah. on their for their sponsor. Or I think Sonny Bill Williams... Uh, didn't want to wear a bank logo because of... Uh, ga- no, uh, no. Well, well, yes, but it was also specifically gambling. Right. Well, gambling, definitely. But, yeah. but the bank with things is interesting, and that has to do with the prohibition on the Arabic word is riba, but it's often equated with interest. Yeah. Right? And so, right. Um, these are of a different character because these are categorical prohibitions within a particular religious tradition, and not only that religious tradition. But And so the athlete in question is confronted with a categorical prohibition on this that sits outside of themselves. So it's not simply conscience. No, yeah, they, that's they right. don't actually get to say yeah. that they can do this. Mm. Right? It's it's external, and it is therefore in its way objectively verifiable. You could sit down with a group of people, a group of experts who know this stuff, and go, "Is that actually a requirement, or is that actually a prohibition?" And they could say, "Yes, no, whatever." And you could gather together evidence, I suppose, that sits outside that particular individual. And it's for that reason that religious and conscientious objection have been treated differently even in the courts. Mm, Um, mm. So conscientious objection, as in something that sits outside of a freedom of religion claim, conscientious objection has tended to be reserved for really, really serious things. So going off to war Mm. or life and death matters. Um, You could have a conscientious objection to, I don't know, having to perform euthanasia. Or, or an abortion mm. or something like that. And that doesn't necessarily have to be religiously grounded, you could argue, although I'd have to go back and look at the case law to see whether those particular examples I've given are good ones. But you get the idea. Mm. It's it's reserved, It's not reserved for cases where I don't like that company's business model. It's reserved for cases of this is a life and death matter. There is something particularly... Ex- I, I, I conscientiously object to going to war mm. to fight in Vietnam or something like that. It's tended to be reserved for those things. That's a distinction that I think gets obliterated in our public discourse and particularly in a society like ours, which is quite secular and I think becoming increasingly aggressively so and irreligious, I think, perhaps even more than just lukewarm on religion. And so the idea that these are actually not entirely the same thing, that religious conscience and just anyone else's individual conscience are exactly, they're coextensive, they're indistinguishable in some way. I don't think that's true, but I think that distinction is being lost. And I understand in saying this that almost everyone disagreeing with, uh, listening to this would disagree with me. But I feel the need to draw that distinction because unless you do, I think you end up in a position on this where it becomes very difficult to say an athlete cannot object to wearing a uniform with a sponsor on it for pretty much any reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not prepared to go that far because I just fear, I mean, unless you want to say let's have sport without sponsorship, which is a totally different conversation. I'm more than happy to have that conversation. But and that's, and that's one of those hills that I think in my darker moments I'd probably be willing to die on. Oh, there would um, probably be a lot of people doing yeah. that. I just think if we're prepared to do that, we That's need not to reckon. Yeah. No, it's not. And we'd also be then talking about a totally different world of sport and maybe not a world we would actually enjoy. Yeah. We, we might think we would, but we may not. That's right, a so, more complex and different conversation. Look, Walid, I have no issues with what you just... I, I, think that's, I think that's superb. And I was hoping when I raised the issue of conscientious objection that this was the response it was going to elicit from you. Because I noticed that for many critics... Much of what's been said has been called a form of virtue signaling or kind of unproductive or un, unconstructive way of trying to promote oneself on the basis of one's moral or ethical bona fides or convictions. Um, I think it's really important to discriminate the various things that are going on here. And I think you've laid out the difference between, say, individual conscience, which may run very, very, very deep indeed and, say, uh, religious convictions. I would also just point out, for instance, I mean, you know, many of these things are very, very current in other parts of the world. I mean, Newcastle United, for instance, several of its Muslim players are frankly refusing and are engaged in some very high-level conversations at the moment with their club about uh, the club accepting the sponsorship of Wonga, this for many kind of extortionary payday lender Mm. that charges felonous, it seems to me, I mean, maybe not felonous in the, in the legal sense, but really crippling forms of interest uh, as a way of propping up its business model. So there are things that... Bear, bear, bear in mind there, what you're talking about again, 
is not just a, I don't like this, it's exploitative. It's also, there's a very particular prohibition here. That's right. That's right. What that raises for me, however, so teams cannot function with, even when there's not uh, deep levels of emotional commitment between the players. I really like my teammates. Teams must have, let's call it... One, one for all and all for one. Right? Yes, but teams ha- must have a requisite degree of deep solidarity. Without that solidarity, and, I mean, that solidarity can exist without the team members liking one another. I can think of several mm. sporting clubs that have been fabulously successful, and, and several of the stars on the team have passionately hated one another. And yet, there needs to be a degree of self-sacrifice and thick solidarity that exists between the team members for that club to be successful and to be a functional team. Here's one of the interesting questions for me. If something is seen by members of a team as presenting a kind of soul injury, let me just put it that way. So it's not just, I really don't like a payday lender, or I really don't like, you know, this particular sponsor. But wearing that would go so violently against my sense of self against my sense of value, against what I believe in as a human being, and what I believe in as a human cannot be separated with my, uh, from my performance as an athlete and my understanding of my belonging within a moral or virtuous community, such that wearing that would do my soul a degree of injury. If another person on the team saw that and registered the degree of injury that my teammate would be subjected to were he or she have it be made to wear that sponsor? How at certain vital points could one not engage in a form of rich or thick solidarity? If this means this much to you, how can I call myself your friend, your colleague, your comrade, your teammate, and for it not to matter to me, at least in the name of solidarity? And what's so interesting to me... I think there are answers to that question, though. Well, but but hang on, hang on, hang on. So I know there are answers, and I'm really interested in, in, in what you say about it. But this just takes us back to the issue of the diamonds, the Australian netball Mm. team. Because what was originally sought by Donnell Wallum was an exemption from having to wear a uniform with the Hancock Prospecting logo on it. In a form of solidarity, her teammates asked initially, and here the, the reporting gets really confusing. So they asked to kind of take a stand with her. If she doesn't, then we all don't. It seems to me, from what I can understand, at various points, um, an application of sorts was made to Netball Australia, and there were conversations being had with Hancock Prospecting about an exception being given, and that exception was denied. The upshot of all of this is that... By the way, that's not what Wallen was asking for. No, it's not. That's exactly right. That's important to note. Because I think in some ways... In other words, sorry, she's sorry, been, not asking for as in that the whole team... Yeah, she wasn't asking for her teammates to do that. That's right. She wasn't really asking for terribly much. No, that's I right. I think that's important to understand because I think a lot of what has subsequently happened, which has ended up, by the way, in Hancock Prospecting, rescinding its $15 million sponsorship of Netball Australia, yeah, which is right. money the sport needs, by the way, because yes. it's, it's not indebted. a sport that is financially that's robust right. at the right. moment. Um, a lot of that has been shaded to her. Yes, I, and and sorry. Not only was it cheated to her, you're you're absolutely right. But I mean, th- this is where the issue of conscience becomes so tricky. There it seems to have been a significant degree of let's call it soft coercion that was taking place to try to get Donnell Wallen to back down from her objection, to spruik the values and the virtues of Hancock Prospecting to spruik the beneficial relationships that the company has had with other sporting clubs. So what's what's interesting here is we have numerous different issues. Firstly, how can that accommodation not be made? But clearly the accommodation was not made. Secondly, was it right for her teammates to show that, to show that solidarity with Donnell Wallen? Finally, uh, once that solidarity, once that so- show of solidarity is made, and once, if you like, the moral stakes have been raised, then where does one, I I hate using the term like draw the line, but how does one separate between that solidarity, those convictions, and what I think you're right is quite a singular case 
of the objection being raised, with then it bleeding into refusing to wear the logo of energy companies. And then where does the distinction lie between that and, say, gambling logos or payday lenders? So there's so many things here, and I don't think it's easy to draw the moral distinction really at much of any point. At some point or another, one realizes that what's being demanded at one point or another is for the athlete to make a harsh or sharp separation between who they are, the deeply held values that animate them, and their ability to take part in or to find a, a place in a form of elite sporting. Well, yeah, but there's also something else that I hadn't thought of until this moment that's beneath the surface there, which is there is a distinction here that kind of is at play between the public and private self. Yeah, that's true. That's right. And this understanding that we have at sites of public interaction, compromise is necessary. Society doesn't function if no one compromises on anything at any That's point. Right. Right. Which is another way of saying that moral purity in a society like ours is impossible to achieve. Well, it's, it becomes dysfunctional. Yeah. Right? And actually, weirdly, this will probably not be language that moral purists would like, but it's a v- hyper-individualistic approach to the world and to morality. Mm. Which is to say, my moral sensibilities and my ever-purifying moral sensibilities are effectively hegemonic within my life, mm. irrespective of, that, of the effect that that might have then on you or on the sport or a whole... By the way, the thing with sports sponsorship is there's a whole ecosystem that potentially gets funded by that, right? Kids don't play sport because the money doesn't trickle down to them depending on how the sport's run or mm. whatever. So that there's a whole lot of stuff that flows from... Yeah, that. but then there's also the interest that's, that the sponsors have in being endorsed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's the questions of sports washing. Sports washing, yeah. that's right. Okay, all, all of that sort of thing. The, the one thing that is not in the scheme that you've identified is the rights of the sponsor to articulate their position, right? Hmm. So, okay, Donald Wallum has an objection. That objection is based on a sentiment expressed by the father of the woman who owns the company that comes from the 1980s. Let's accept that is a deep, soul-penetrating objection. Mm. To what extent does the company have to write the right to say, I hear your objection, but here's why it's misconceived? Or do they not have that right? Well, from what I understand, well, they've been invited to respond in just no, no, such but a way. as a theoretical matter. Okay. Do they have that right? Or in your view, are you saying that the soul pain is final? No, I don't think it's final. But let's just say at this point, it's livid such that it needs to be taken seriously. It needs to be treated with the requisite moral seriousness. And if some accommodation can be made, sorry, I mean a, a reciprocal accommodation, it can't be made hastily. It cannot be coerced, either in the form of hard or soft coercion. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the space needs to be created for that kind of responsiveness that you're talking about. And I wonder if that space might have existed had it not been then a team-wide thing and then yeah, I'm not sure. what wow. became a showdown. I'm not sure. Hey, we need to bring in our guest. Maybe not. Our guest is David Pocock. He's the independent senator for the Australian Capital Territory. But before being elected to the Senate in 2022, he was a professional rugby union player for 13 years. He represented the Western Force, the ACT Brumbies, the Saitama Wild Knights. And, of course, he served with the Wallabies, including as captain. David, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Uh, Scott and Waleed, thanks for having me. So, look, you've, I mean, essentially we've been incredibly unfair to you by laying out the problems. One of the many reasons we wanted to speak to you is because we felt that this was important to discuss from the perspective of athletes themselves, not so much the interests of the clubs or the interests of the sponsors or even the interests of sports in general, but the particular, I guess, moral constraints that exists upon athletes. And I guess one of the things that's been unfairly described is that this is a problem occasioned by the rise of activist athletes who really should simply know their place uh, I mean, my, my sport is basketball. Players, for as long as I can remember, have been told, just shut up and dribble. It seems to me there's something of that that's going on among many critics here. I'm, I'm just going to hand it over to you, David. Where do you want to take us? Well, I think this is a really important thing for Australia to be talking about and do have concerns about some of the debate or, or lack of debate we're seeing. And to maybe, I really enjoyed listening to you guys talk about it and, and maybe just to touch on a couple of those points. Uh, Waleed, you, you talked about religious objections, 
potentially being different because they are external and objectively verifiable. In the case of Donnell Wallum, I think you could also argue that Lang Hancock's comments and the legacy of treatment of First Nations people, which Australia is still grappling with, mm. are also external and objectively verifiable. And then to make it really clear, the diamonds conversation is separate to the fossil fuel sponsorship. Yeah. Mm, that's right. And I think we should make that point. But I think even with fossil fuels and their contribution to climate change, you could also argue that that is now external and objectively verifiable. Scott, I think Sorry, your point about... Say, David, that, that, that's not yeah. quite what I mean by external and verifiable. What I mean is the obligation not to wear that uniform or the obligation to absent oneself from that is the thing that's external and verifiable. Mm -hmm. So it's not the cause itself that's external. It's the prohibition. Right, at, the, the, at the risk of putting words in your mouth, well, well, it's probably something more like <laughs> Muslim players do not have the right to make their own minds up about alcohol consumption or payday lenders. There's something oh, about that. Yeah. Yes, yes. There, there, there's something about that that sort of that exceeds their consciences and their mm -hmm. wills. They're, they're bound. Yeah. Yes. Which I think then comes to, Scott, you talked about the, the deep respect or even love of each other in a team, you have this bigger purpose, you're spending a lot of time with uh, your teammates, you get to know them. And that one creates a barrier to uh, speaking up and, and causing issues because you don't want to disrupt things. You, you realize that sponsors do pay part of your bills and your teammates may not hold your beliefs. And there's constant compromise around sponsors. If you spoke to any team, almost guarantee you not everyone is happy with who they run onto the field, onto the court, emblazoned across their, their chest or their, or their back. But the, it's, it's, it's compromise and, and players are willing to deal with that. But then I think the, the other thing we see with this is that solidarity, which mm. I think really is so important to cultural change when when you get to know people and you care about them and they raise something and you actually say well that may not have been an objection for me I, I don't know the history that isn't part of my story but I really see what you're saying and this isn't right and I'm going to stand with you and we saw that from the diamonds mm. I think on the, on the request from the Diamonds to have that exemption, it, it seems pretty reasonable to me. Whereas, you know, Gina Reinhart's response, she pulled funding from Netball, she pulled funding from Netball WA, she pulled funding from the Queensland Firebirds. Her reaction seems disproportionate to the request for an exemption from for Donald and, you know, potentially distancing herself from what are, I think we can all agree are pretty heinous comments. Mm. Yeah, and there's a possibility that this all gets handled much more simply if Gina Reinhardt just says, well, of course I don't subscribe to those comments and of, of course I repudiate them and here's all the stuff that we... I mean, and this yeah, was part of Hancock's Pride was a real... Yeah, but Waleed, pride was a real issue. You could even see that in Gina Reinhardt's response. She wanted the players to wear the Hancock logo with pride. Mm. And so, I mean, the very thing that's being requested of her, this kind of accommodation, there's a kind of tacit acknowledgement of the pain. There's a tacit acknowledgement of the history that exists here. And I think that's the very thing that could not be granted. Yeah, but then the question becomes also, what would you have them do? Like, what would you have the company do? Because... You know, and they made this argument, didn't they? Here are all the relationships we have with Indigenous communities. Here is all the money that we've invested in them uh, and so on. Here is our track record on that question. Judge us on that. Don't judge us on a, a comment by someone who's now dead from the 80s or a worldview that is clearly not the company's worldview. So that's the argument they were putting forward, and clearly that wasn't enough. At which point the question becomes... I don't, I don't know, David, I'm interested in your thoughts on this... What would you have them do? Because the, I understand you're saying this is an overreaction to can we have an exemption for wearing the logo or this thing. But there's more than just an exemption wearing the logo that's at stake here. It's the declaration of this company as being basically racially genocidal. Right? Mm -hmm. that's, 
That's what, and so I could understand if I would, I mean, I have no idea what it's like to be Gina Reinhardt, but I could imagine going, well, I'm not going to stump up millions of dollars for that to be the way that I'm depicted mm-hmm. and that my company's depicted, irrespective mm-hmm. of everything that we've done in that area since. Mm-hmm. And so why should I? Why should I just put myself up for being insulted in this way that I find mm-hmm. unfair? Now, I'm obviously mm-hmm. imagining what she's thinking. It seems a plausible version of what she was thinking. Mm-hmm. So what would you have her do in that situation? I think the difficulty with this is that often these issues that flare up in sports that aren't necessarily to do with just playing sports tie into larger issue, cultural issues that we are facing And clearly, (laughs) treatment of First Nations people in Australia is something that we continue to grapple Mm. with. You know, the 1980s is not ancient history. (laughs) That's not that long ago. And so, sure, you can talk about all the great things you're doing with uh, Indigenous employment, but I think words are powerful and actually being able to say, that was wrong, we clearly don't believe that anymore. We need to be moving forward and be part of this conversation. But I think what we're seeing here is an unwillingness to even entertain that. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable criticism. But nonetheless, if she feels that she's being... Like, this is a very serious allegation to hurl at the company, right? To say that this is kind of what it stands for. She can't hang around, can she? She can't keep her money. I, I accept, I agree with you that the better response would be to address it in that way. Mm-hmm. But assuming she's not for whatever reason, um, and Scott mentioned that she wanted them to wear it with pride, etc. maybe that was impossible, even with that sort of statement. It's like, well, we can't. Nonetheless, we still feel it's tainted by all of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is she left with an option? Well, she clearly made her decision. And on the, on the broader sort of issue around athletes speaking about things outside of their sport, Mm. these sort of social issues, moral objections. We've got to remember how hard it is as an athlete to actually do that. Mm. Uh, Most athletes who make it to this level, they've dreamt of doing this their whole childhood. Many of them, their childhood has been dedicated to their sport. They finally get this chance uh, Danelle Wallum, before even playing her first test match for Australia, has the guts to raise this. And yet we've seen just so many attacks mm. on her, on these spoilt athletes, uh, which I think is really the wrong way to have this yeah. conversation. If you're willing to do that at this level, knowing what's on stake, your your sport is in financial trouble, you've been given this lifeline by Gina Reinhart to actually raise that. I think it it warrants discussion about athletes being able to be uncomfortable with who is sponsoring their sports. And it raises the broader issue around social license and who we're allowing to sponsor sport. Given in Australia, we know how important sport is to our national psyche. We, We know how much sport people watch And we know how much kids are influenced by advertising. Well, I guess this takes us to the tobacco analogy, Mm -hmm. right? Which is what's come up, because you mentioned who we allow to sponsor sport. Um, Maybe that's the best Mm -hmm. way to get into the fossil fuel conversation, right? Um, And I think it is. And and my concern with... It seems to me that uh, tobacco sponsorship, the phasing out of that and and banning it, is fairly non-controversial. It'd be hard to Mm -hmm. find that many people who say, no, actually, we should be advertising tobacco to children. But it seems now in our current social media world to raise these sorts of things, you're just this woke person who wants to destroy society. And being halfway through your quarterly essay uh, where you talk about contempt, I think we see contempt in the way that we deal with this with both sides just flinging mud at each other not even having a a discussion about what really is an, an important issue going forward given the the large the big challenges that we're facing 
I, th I think this is absolutely vital. I'm so glad you've kind of bumped us in this direction, David, because uh, it seems to me that one of the real shifts that we're looking at here, you know, I mean, it's something that Waleed and I have t talked about on other occasions. We've kind of lamented to some extent, I suppose, maybe not completely, but to some extent, is the phenomenon of athlete empowerment, that they're no longer simply chattel of the clubs, uh, but they're their own brands. Uh, they have immense sort of individual value. They're empowered to leave clubs where they're unhappy. They're empowered to go to other clubs that are willing to pay them a lot more money. Um, so there's the whole phenomenon of athlete empowerment, which I think has been uh, good for some sports. I think it's been fairly deleterious for others. My beloved basketball, I think, is suffering massively from too much player empowerment. Yet at the same time, one of the things that you also have is not just the empowerment of individual athletes, but you also have the empowerment of athletes' unions or of players' associations. And I think what we're now looking at is a certain crossroads where once upon a time, sponsors were in negotiations with club administrators. The clubs then imposed upon athletes, well, these are the agreements that we've made. You're our product. We are putting this billboard effectively on your chest. And because we pay you massive amounts of money, you're simply going to like it. The idea that clubs should not be in consultation with their athletes about what sponsorships they, uh, they engage in, what they're prepared to wear on their chest, what they're prepared thereby tacitly to support. The idea is that clubs should not be in consultation with the people that make up the team, I think is simply a ludicrous idea. It's not simply kind of wokeness. It's also the extent to which athletes have been empowered to a very important degree to place their whole selves onto the court or onto the field instead of just having their, uh, their talents, their particular proficiencies promiscuously used by their, by their overlords. That seems to me is a very, very important issue. And things, things like the NBA, where uh, players' unions have been empowered and empowered themselves to drive degrees of change, especially surrounding Black Lives Matter to imperil sponsorship, and yet for the clubs and the coaches and the coaching staff to back up behind and alongside the players and to support them, that, it seems to me, is unequivocally a good thing. It's the very thing we want to nurture among athletes, isn't it? I'd agree. My experience playing rugby was that there was little to no consultation around sponsorships. It was simply a business decision, and athletes were just seen as you're employed to go out there and wear whatever uniform we give you. And I think sort of looking back through history, this is not unprecedented. Mm, you right. look at the 1968 Olympics, John Carlos and Tommy Smith with their Black Power salute, along with Australian Peter Norman, mm. the price they paid for that was huge. There was outrage at these athletes using what should have been an absolute privilege just to be at the Olympics to send a message about racial injustice in the United States in the, in the 60s. Now we celebrate them. There are paintings, statues. We recognize that they were part of adding to that conversation of driving social change. Muhammad Ali with his um, opposition to, to the draft and the mm. war in Vietnam. At the time, totally vilified by large sections of society. I really believe that sport is at its best when it's challenging society to be more inclusive, when it's taking an active role in these really thorny issues that we are facing. And my experience in, in sporting teams was it's a great place to have those conversations. And it, it's a great sort of training ground, testing ground, where you are thrown together with a bunch of people who you may not ordinarily have spent much time with, but you had this common purpose and you get to know them and you realize that I may not see eye to eye on all sorts of issues, but I, re I respect you and I can see where you're coming from and I can actually work with you. So we have seen certain things, though, over the last few years. Most recently, the owner of the Phoenix Suns, uh, an American basketball team, was, uh, let's say, softly coerced to sell his club after conduct of a racist and sexist nature uh, was detailed in a report and then found to be uh, confirmed in a, in a team investigation. Uh, effectively, he didn't want to go anywhere. And then sponsors began 
applying pressure. So we've seen, I think, over the last five... Which people then applaud, by the way. Yes, which people then or, applaud. That's right. Or the other example I, th I think of is um, the Israel Folau example. Yes, that's right. Where one of the reasons that, of course, his stay within the sport and then perhaps you know, his inability to go into the NRL when that was floated was untenable, was that sponsors wouldn't like it mm. and so on. It seems that what happens is sponsors' imperatives are celebrated when they fall in line with your political persuasions right. and then castigated when they don't. And it's a... I, I don't know. I mean, that, that just strikes me as a bit unprincipled, right? You either decide that corporate imperatives should prevail or you, or you don't, don't you? Well, I think it also points to people saying sports and politics shouldn't mix. But what I think most people mean is that athletes shouldn't be allowed to express their views when they don't align with you know, what, what other people think or the majority view. We certainly don't kick up a stink every time politicians use sport to their advantage and mm. appear at sporting events and, and use it as a way to curry political favour. When it comes to sponsorship, I think we're seeing that companies realise that they have a role to play in society and whether we like it or not, they are positioning themselves to be part of social change. I think that has you know, an upside and a not you know, insignificant downside, but they clearly play a role in, in these sorts of changes and in some instances dictating what sports do and, and don't make a stand on. Okay, but here, here's, here's, I think, my question. So, I mean, Waleed's right that, you know, sponsors can place degrees of pressure on sporting clubs and that sporting clubs oftentimes do have to, if not defer, then at least take seriously uh, the approbation or disapprobation of their, of their sponsors. Let's just put it that way. I guess one of my questions is, do you really think we're at the point where clubs can begin putting a kind of countervailing pressure back on sponsors. In other words, you've, this is sporting clubs talking to sponsors, you've used our reputation, our prowess, our skill, our bodies in order to burnish your reputation. But if we withhold that until you come to a particular point where we feel you're honoring your obligations to society, to the future, uh, to fairness, to equity, I mean, do we, are we at the point where we can reasonably expect that pressure, if you like, going back the other way? That's, that's part of my question. The other part of my question, though, is, I guess, when people say that they don't want sports and politics to mix, what they probably, well, it might not be what they mean, but I think what some of us mean is we need to preserve those sections in society where we really can come around something in common. And I guess the danger with everything being politicized or having div potentially divisive political messages is that every site of our social life, whether it be the movies we watch or the television we watch or the sports we follow, becomes yet another flashpoint, another thing where we're confronted with this thing that we may be divided from other people. I don't think that necessarily is the case, but it does show, I guess, these two things, the relationship between sports putting pressure on sponsors and then sports, at the other hand, communicating with public as a whole. This is something we care about. This is something we believe in. I mean, there are questions, it seems to me, and dangers going in both ways. I'm not sure if this is going to answer your question, but I think there's this real interaction between uh, sports fans beginning to expect more of their teams mm. and realise that when a company sponsors a team, they're not doing it just because... They like that sport. Sure, some may, but most sponsors would have an objective. They are using that to increase sales. They want to build their brand. Mm. They want to build their social license. And we, I think we're starting to realize that advertising is all around us. And is this actually good for society? Should we maybe not have a conversation about the types of advertising that we want to allow and expose ourselves to every day and, and, and our children. Corporations have, have real power in this space. And I'm thinking we're, we're seeing sort of play out uh, at time with these bursts onto the public arena, but bubbling under the surface constantly is this, this conversation where people are saying, should we allow this 
company to sponsor our sport. Sure, the money's good. Will this square with what fans want? And, you know, I think that applies in the Diamonds case, as we've seen, although I think is slightly separate given the nature of it. But then we're seeing that around gambling, junk food, fossil fuels. Mm. It's uncomfortable, but I think it is an important important conversation to have. What's interesting here is what you're talking about, David, are sporting clubs wanting to see in their sponsors an extension of their values rather than sponsors wanting to see in sporting clubs fresh new possibilities for their advertising. Well, I think we're seeing both. Sponsors obviously see the opportunity to reach a potentially different audience or just reinforce their brand with, with an existing audience. But athletes and fans more and more wanting the sport that they play for, the, the team that they love, to have sponsors that align with their espoused values. Mm. And sure, there's going to there's gonna be constant compromises. I think the ones we see jump into the media are where athletes or fans have just really big objections to what's going on. Mm. But there are also usually areas where those big objections are far from wide, like uh, unanimously shared. So to take the fossil fuel case, to some extent, the, the parallels with tobacco that I've seen in the commentary uh, really frustrate me because there's such a different example to tobacco. Um, everyone is using energy all the time and we all need to. So you're talking here about energy companies and if what you want to say is that they are now beyond the pale, then that raises all sorts of questions about hypocrisy, even with the athletes involved who are jumping on planes every five minutes to go and compete or whatever, or who are drawing on all kinds of... I mean, do they object to the energy use within their own sporting organisation and whether or not it's all like 100% renewable or whatever. Or like, one of the reasons it becomes so contested is that there are no criteria on which, no criteria are offered to determine what sort of sponsorships should be beyond the pale and what sort shouldn't. And so it just well, becomes an assertion of politics. It's like, oh, well, this mm. is my line and that's it. And it's an absolute line. And then, of course, people are going to get their backs up because we're not working with anything that people can come to from different perspectives and try to crunch through together. All you can have is assertion. But is this about use or is it about social harm? And so if, if you look at social harm, the continued use and expansion of fossil fuels will have will cause far more harm to society and, and our planet than smoking cigarettes ever could. And, you know, athletes are not saying we shouldn't use any fossil fuels at all. The objection is to the continued expansion of the fossil fuel industry here in Australia at a time where the IPCC is saying, even the International Energy Agency is saying, if we want a livable future, which most of us do, then no new coal, oil and gas. And we're seeing fossil fuel companies disregard that at a time when I think you know, across society people are realising, yes, our, our current way of life has been so dependent and is, is a result of fossil fuels, but they're not the future. So let's get on with this transition. And the objection, in my mind, is to fossil fuel companies who are sitting on massive, massive profits using that sponsorship to try and extend their life, their social license at a time where it really should be winding back. Yeah. Uh, no, I see the point, but I feel like arguments over no new fossil fuel projects or whatever, these were arguments for government policy, right? Or over government policy. The, the reality is that with these fossil fuel companies, they're providing energy that we're all using. It's different to the cigarette example, <laughs> right? Because they're not providing an essential good for society, and so I think, I don't know, there's a certain absolutism in saying we're going to draw the line here. But actually, you know what, we're kind of having an irrelevant argument here. It's not yeah, about whether this is a good line. The argument is over, there are no criteria on which the line is being drawn that are being explicit. And I, and I don't know, like, I wonder if that's the problem. Could you articulate a line? Is there a, is there a test for determining a, a sponsor that's beyond the pale? Well, I think that happens through having these conversations and on your point about that being 
you know, phasing out fossil fuels being something for politicians. Ideally, it should be. Politicians should be looking ahead and saying, what are the big challenges we face? How do we deal with these as early as possible to turn them into opportunities? Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be what happens. Society leads and eventually politicians seem to fall into line and, and you know, get the, get the policy in place. And my concern with a lot of the public conversation around fossil fuels and athletes raising concerns about being walking billboards for them is that it really falls into this myth, this line that the fossil fuel in- industry actually engineered around your carbon footprint. Mm. If you're getting on a plane or playing under lights to play cricket, you have absolutely no right talking about the transition away from fossil fuels because you use fossil fuels. Mm. It's simply not the case. You're, you cannot compare someone's carbon footprint and, and you know, personal choice is important, but unless it's scaled by politics, it's, it doesn't add up to much at all. So rather than attack athletes, over that, I think we should be saying, well, yes, the, the scientists are saying we should be moving away from fossil fuels. And sport is part of this. And I think it's a really important part of telling the story of just how hard it is to deal with this mm. problem, just how entrenched fossil fuels are. But we've all got to be part of the, the solution. Yeah. Well, yeah. well no, said. I think, yeah, I think they're all good points. Yeah. And I, so I suppose one of the reasons I was really keen on having solidarity part of this conversation. And uh, one of the exchanges, David, that Walid and I had before the, the show is I kind of suggested that sports, in many respects, because they're bound by that higher purpose and and thrive on solidarity, they are, in a sense, a kind of society and microcosm. But to to have these kinds of deliberations taking place among members of a common team, for those deliberations to then achieve something like either mutual agreement or or shared conviction, and then for that to be communicated to the clubs who then know the bounds that they have to exist within when it comes to seeking sponsorship. That, it seems to me, is quite an operable model of the way that democratic society is supposed to work in the first place. Yeah. I think most athletes would welcome more involvement in deciding these things. At the end of the day, professional sports is a big, is big business. And so I think we're going to constantly see this tension. And I think... In, in some ways, a healthy tension and, and, and compromise and athletes who are willing to actually put their hand up and say, oh, I'm really uncomfortable about this. I, there's got to be a better way to do things. And mm. my hope is that our public conversation around this can be more constructive, that we can take these concerns as valid and, and debate them on their merits rather than both sides sort of simply getting into a uh, you know the usual fight the trench warfare of the yeah 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 i mean maybe a way of framing it is there are certain benefits that come with becoming a human billboard but surely there are rights that accrue Mm -hmm. in that process as well Mm -hmm. and this is just a way of trying to work out what those rights are and what the limits Mm -hmm. of them are david thanks so much for joining us we really appreciate you sparing some time and you'd be very busy schedule thanks scott and well he'd really enjoyed that david pocock independent senator for the australian capital territory our guest for this week's edition of the minefield we're at an end for now we'll see you soon You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.